There once was a boy who watched a lot of TV. A lot. He'd take a show's plot and craft his own world in his mind. He'd play through so many scenarios in his mind as he paced across the floor again and again and again. He'd create entire new worlds to experience in his mind, filling his life with excitement. His parents wanted him to play more video games, but he preferred his own thoughts, pacing across the floor. More and more and more, some were intrigued by what he came up with, letting new thoughts swirl through them. Others would ignore him, others would point out something similar they've heard before, sometimes without even hearing him out. Eventually, that boy got a new obsession, YouTube taking in more and more thoughts from an array of perspectives. This brought him questions. Were all the ideas he had that useful anymore? There's a world full of creative people, but could he think of something they all haven't? Yet some thoughts kept swirling. He thought he'd just keep taking it all in, but he wanted to let his own thoughts out. Should he start his own YouTube channel? But an easier way to focus on getting thoughts out over the visuals, a podcast. So this will be my first attempt at an audio show. For the start, I'm going to mainly talk about the television medium I consume the most, animation. But of course, I plan on incorporating my own ideas and branching out into other topics. So for my first, I'm gonna talk about my cartoon theories. I've posted some of these on different platforms before, but this will be a more in-depth look. So, as it is the show with Net That Snares All Theorists, Steven Universe. So, it's been a few years since this series ended. It had its ups, downs, and strayed pretty far from what I was hoping for. We can have that talk later. Or never. But no one can deny the warm, fuzzy feeling this show brought us. And you know, Stephen would want you to hear me out. So here's five theories I had while this show was still running that I could hold a little weight till the end. Number one, gems are intentionally given childlike personalities. If you think back in Lapis's first appearance, she took the moody teenager approach of just leave me alone Girl, you tore apart this planet's ecosystem and probably wrecked all kinds of boats. You leave us alone. Later on, Jasper even refers to her as a brat. They view her as a child. Somehow, White Diamond knows what a child is. It's pretty much confirmed. Their AIs, as we can assume, White and possibly the other diamonds, spent some time with organic life. Or was just programmed with an understanding of them. Could this have made Lapis is e easier to control, since we'd assume they it could do some damage even to the diamond's plants? Well, maybe they'll just fly off in a fit of rage when they're mad, instead of tearing apart colonies. Or maybe the purpose of this is for them to see terraforming as their little game of power display. We also see this with Aquamarine. She's a spoiled brat that would respond to flattery and any reward the diamonds may give. So she'll do what they want and not turn on her. One capable of immobilizing a 50-foot gem fusion on them seems like an effective form of control. I guess it's a possibility that 
This isn't a method of control, but a matter of warmth and care put into certain gems, as Spinel seems to be important enough. As with Lapis and Aquamarine, the Diamonds did seem fond of them, unlike their indifference to Blue Holly Agate, who seems like an old lady to me. Number two, Pearl knew about Bismuth all along. In Rose's Scabbard, we see Pearl have meltdown over not knowing some info on Rose. Yet, instead of that, she is simply excited to see Bismuth, no other emotion, even after she explains that Rose found a way to spare her. That's an excuse. Pearl is even the one who starts suggesting who it may be when Stephen describes the gem in Lion's Mane in the first place. Even when Stephen returns with Bismuth in a bubble, we see Pearl cover her mouth again. You could chalk this up to Pearl thinking about Rose's true identity having a factor in this moment, but with all, all other evidence, Pearl was just too happy to see Bismuth to, to make this stop. Take that and run, shippers. We assume the shattering happened after Bismuth was bubbled, so before Pink permanently took Rose's form, she could have been willing to silence Pearl a lot more which Pearl was her confidant who wouldn't be able to accept not knowing this. Number three, Lapis held back. Some would chalk these situations up to plot convenience, which is common in this show, but we can have that talk another day. But the fight between Malachite and Alexandra is well executed. I mean, Lapis almost took the gem with a broken gem. They stand no chance against her with an intact gem and Jasper. Unless, we say, Lapis held Jasper on a leash through this fight. After their time together, Lapis let Jasper have access to a few of her abilities, as maybe that was her way of justifying all she did to Jasper in the relationship. Maybe that was to keep her from finding a way to escape. Either way, Lapis let Jasper have a bit of control, but she was unaware of Lapis's full abilities. Lapis kept Jasper from using pieces of her moveset, and this kept them from winning the fight. Number four, Lion was trapped. Even though I always knew Garnet must have known about Lion, since she smiles and says, there's nothing here that can hurt you. But why does Lion come to Steven there and then? Could Pink have considered him an old plaything she tired of and locked him in her storage area in the desert? Don't worry, Pink has grown since Spinel. We can give her more credit. Maybe the culprit is a desert glass. It could have kept him running through a sandy labyrinth all that time. Or he could have been tasked with keeping it in check if maybe Pink had some sympathy for the gem in this pillow, she wouldn't have condemned it to a bubble like so many others. Instead, she could have let it play with her beloved lion, and they both held each other down like yin and yang, making sure neither did damage elsewhere until Garnet made the call. Maybe that, that one's just a little fanfic explanation, but I'm having fun here. Number five. Pink Diamond released all the corrupted gems once before. I don't see why people argue with me on the numbers here. Centipedal was an unfortunate one who stayed in an attempt to make sure all of her crew was accounted for. We see in Lapis's flashback that there was advance notice of the corruption blast that many gems fled from. Considering how many gems it must have taken 
to maintain the colony, and it is stated Crystal Gems was a small army. It makes no sense. There's so many corrupted gems. If the Crystal Gems' main function was taking out corrupted gems, if they were catching, say, even just one a week over 5,000 years, they still would have caught over 250,000 by now. Yet, in the time of the series, there's still enough for Jasper to build an army without looking very hard. Would it really take that many gems to run the colony? We see the majority of gems created on Earth was there need for some, so many hundreds of thousands. Yet, there's another explanation for this. What if they did have the majority of corrupted gems bubbled away at one point, and Pink Diamond released them all? This could have happened accidentally in her attempt to cure them, could have been throwing them all in her elixir, but the more interesting theory is that she didn't even bubble them, just kept a few sealed away constantly testing in secret locations where she could let the other gems think they were bubbled. Then they all began escaping after she was gone. After that, let's move on to another story-driven cartoon. We've had enough with Steven Universe, but these won't be in universe theories, more an interpretation. Let's talk about Star versus the Forces of Evil. Most of us agree there was little logic to how this series ended. What you mean? The monsters were saved. Their sick oppression is over and can live their lives freely along with all the magic, unicorn, sentient spells, and, oh, right, tons of beings were erased. To stop an enemy, they gave an alternative to stopping. Not to mention the monsters were put in a world where they'll probably still be persecuted. Tons of people have called this out, but I haven't seen many explore a deeper meaning behind it. My first, and what I think is the most likely theory, is that magic just represents cultural history of Muni. This is what made the humans feel they were so above the monsters culturally and genetically. Taking it away was what happened to gain forgiveness from the monsters and to put them on the same level. They no longer had magic to hold over them. This also sent them back to their original world, where they will be humbled and stand by the monsters through whatever happens on Earth. Even through some disagree, like Mihina not giving them that stance of the history and culture backing them makes them seem like a joke. My other theory is that magic just represents the monarchy. We're already seeing how people can't take care of themselves and rely on Moon. This could be read as a pro-establishment message that dismantling the monarchy wasn't the answer because it sent the humans and monsters to a different place they didn't understand and will likely have a new set of problems in. Unless Star and Marco reunited afterward, it's supposed to mean it was all worth it then, that even in this strange new world, they'll all find something better. No evidence things will work out for anyone else. I still don't like this ending, even then, Justice for Spider with a top hat. May his soul haunt Star forever. Eight legs pace her floor in the nights. Well, one other explanation I got for this after Kitty Monk's video on Glossary. Watch that video if you haven't. 
She points out how Glossaric sets all the events in uni history in motion, yet couldn't seem to care less. He cares more about food or whatever and lets the bookholder do their thing. The most logical explanation I could give for this is that he is working for someone else. We see him treated as a chore that he has to give the first humans the wand and he knows the future. I think he is doing a job here. Maybe the purpose is of a Hollis situation where Glossar grooms the queens to be soldiers for another cause in the afterlife. Or maybe Glossaric's boss just hates the monsters. Either way, we see how devastated Glossaric is at the loss of Comet Butterfly. Maybe that's why he made the decision to end the cycle with Star, forsaking his boss. All possibilities, Glossaric clearly isn't too invested. And with that, let's move on from the story-driven cartoons. Let's take a trip to the past. A cartoon that ended long ago. Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. I was watching a bit of it last year, and this theory popped in my mind. Madam Foster is the matriarch who founded the Grand Home. Yet, is she really what she seems? A woman who's shrunk so much, as seen in the yearly house photos, and keeps a walker to traverse the floor at a turtle pace. Yet, we've also seen her do a flip, restrain someone much larger, and even climb a tree to save a cat like imaginary friend. Could an old woman who requires a walker do this? My next point, Mr. Harriman. He makes a speech to her painting on a few occasions. In the episode on his carrot addiction, he asks her painting for forgiveness. Would this woman who pays him in carrots condemn him for this? It's like his talks with the painting are representing someone who is deceased. My next point is, for all the house's shenanigans, she shows disappointments not entering Blue's paintball war and starts a war of dares. Everyone is so surprised by this, as if someone else in this position would not be okay with it. She even poses as her own bust so Blue can cover up that he broke the old one. Who would play along with all of this but an imaginary friend? Frankie Foster? This is your imaginary friend you created her to take your grandma's place after her passing. It's a possibility. The real Madam Foster was a bit toned down on the fun and crazy level. Who knows? Away from this show now. On to the last one. This is when I came up with when theories for every show were popular. You know, every character is in a coma or on a drug trip. Courage is just a dog interpreting people as monsters. You know the ones. I came up with a few like that. One for Samurai Jack, that he came from a very traditional family that shunned the modern world. So Aku was just his uncle trying to convince them to change their mind. And the training was just him ending up in foster homes. I also had a dark one for my life as a teenage robot where Brad and Tuck were senile old men in a nursing home, and XJ-9 was just a machine used to pump up their hearts. But the theory like this I thought out most was from the Cartoon Network series' regular show. This is a show about park workers, and the main characters are in their 20s. Writers probably want to push the world revolves around me cliche for someone this age. It is mentioned that Mordecai attended art school, 
So my theory is that the whole series is him writing a comic about his life. I do realize there's an episode acknowledging his art, but that could be a reference to a time he wasn't good or working under pressure. Anyway, this does make sense with the formula of normal situations becoming grander because he is exaggerating them. If you notice, most of the characters that stay in the background and get killed off are regular people, because the characters that aren't regular people are the ones important enough for Mordecai to, to draw in detail. He doesn't care about the ones who stay regular people. Why is he a blue jay? It's referenced his family liked animals, and a lot of bird watchers get excited over blue jays, so he'd make himself something people would get excited to see. On to Rigby, he's obviously a raccoon because he's constantly knocking things over and such. But on here, I'd like to point out how much it's emphasized Rigby is the bigger screw-up of the two, yet there's several times both get blamed for something he did. This makes me believe Rigby doesn't exist at all, and is just a persona Mordecai created to blame everything on. This should move us to Margaret. She's a similar bird to Mordecai, because as his crush, he finds their similarities with the red representing love now. Pointing out Eileen, since Mordecai sees Margaret as his reflection, she has a Rigby. Eileen is just what he finds unappealing in Margaret, which is why he picked similar traits to move to someone else on his next crush, CJ, who is probably just a girl with anger issues. Yet Eileen becomes her own character when Mordecai learns to appreciate those traits. Even though for this theory, I'm assuming the last season has no more base in reality, all Mordecai's story. So going on from here, Pops is a lollipop because he's nice and probably gives out candy. Benson is a candy machine because he provides the group with something. Skips is a gorilla because he's smart and strong, which makes him makes that the best animal candidate in Mordecai's mind. Muscle Man is just a big loud guy, and I would say High Five Ghost doesn't exist just representing a nice side of Muscle Man but he could also just be Muscle Man's quiet friend. I think this is a strong possibility for a show that dips in and out of realism. And if you're still here, thank you very much for listening. Stephen would kiss you. But I'd just tell you to follow me on Twitter at Swirling Thoughts. Or at Swirling Thought 3.